Amen. So if you're joining us for the first time this week, we began a new series last week looking together at the prophet Elijah. And we're looking together at Elijah because in this man, Elijah, in this prophet who breaks onto the scene in the midst of a very dark and a sinister time in Israel's history, a time when it seemed like God was absent, here in this prophet we see the surprising and unexpected power and grace of God at work in the midst of a world that sometimes forgets that God's around. And I think in some ways we inhabit a culture, a secular age that forgets or ignores or is unaware of the presence and the reality of God. And so Elijah and these narratives bring to us a greater awareness of the ways in which God wants to be at work in our lives and in our world today. Now today we're, we're going to be looking together at a story, a, a very tragic story about uh, the, this widow who loses her son. And of course, there is no more devastating experience than one can have than perhaps the loss of a child. You know, several years ago, Kay Warren, who is the wife of Rick Warren, the guy who planted Saddleback Church, The Purpose Driven Life, and uh, what many people don't know is that back in 2014, their son Matthew died in his early 20s. And Matthew was um, a Christian, but he struggled with severe mental illness, and it led to just a dark night of his soul, and he, he took his own life. And on the one-year anniversary of his death, uh, Kay Warren, in an interview with Christianity Today, said this. She said, quote, as the one-year anniversary of Matthew's death approaches, I have been shocked by some subtle and not so subtle comments indicating that perhaps I should be ready to, quote, move on. I have to tell you, the old Rick and Kay are gone. They're never coming back. We will never be the same again. You know, the death of a child leaves an indelible mark that will never go away. I was reading a book a while back by Nicholas Wolterstorff, uh, who lost a son of his in his 20s, and he said that losing a child like that is like losing a limb. He says, you never grow it back. You just learn how to live in this new reality without the limb. Well, interestingly, in that same interview, uh, Rick, Kay's husband, uh, who feels the same way as she does about kind of this tragedy and loss, uh, said this. He said, in God's garden of grace, even broken trees bear fruit. In God's garden of grace, even broken trees bear fruit. And he discussed in this interview how Matthew's life, as tragically as it ended, led eventually to a great impact, which included the founding of an organization that was designed to help people with mental health concerns, and today is just helping thousands and thousands of people. Now, of course, that's no consolation for the loss of their child, and yet somehow in the midst of the pain, uh, Rick and Kay have been able to hold on to both pain and loss as well as hope. And the question I want us just to wrestle with today as we look at the text we're looking at is how is it possible for this kind of pain and loss to coexist with hope? How is it possible to find new fruit growing in places of our life that feel like broken branches? And the story that we're looking at today helps us kind of wrestle with and address 
that question. And it begins in 1 Kings chapter 17, and it begins like this. It says, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill, and he grew worse and worse. I don't know if any of the parents in the room ever had that situation where you have a child and they're getting sick, and maybe it's in the middle of the night. It seems like they are always sickest in the middle of the night, and they're getting worse and worse. You know, for one of my daughters, Mia, she, she got croup fairly regularly and really severely, and it was just terrifying to us. I mean, there's nothing more terrifying when, than, than, to, than to see your child struggling to breathe. And here, this widow's son is getting worse and worse, and it's spinning out of control, and she feels like there's nothing I can do. I am powerless in the face of this nightmare, and I can't stop it, I can't help it, and all of this darkness until finally this, till finally he stopped breathing. And what makes this tragedy even worse is that the text tells us that she already was a widow. She was already wrestling with her own trauma and that darkness of losing a husband and needing to raise this son on her own. And now this, and now she has to relive all of that darkness and all of that pain again. And then, and then to make matters worse, the text tells us that this tragedy strikes, it says, sometime later. Sometime later after what? Well, sometime later after what happened in just the previous paragraph, and what happened there? Well, this woman's hopes were revived. Because remember what happened? The prophet showed up, and she was on her last leg. She thought she was going to cook her last meal for her son, and then they were going to die. You know, and so she's dealing with this trauma, this darkness, and she's worried about the very existence of her, can they live one more day? And then this prophet shows up and challenges her to take a step of faith and to share her last meal with the prophet of God. And she takes a step of faith, and her faith is not let down, and her despair now yields to a surprise and delight, and the prophet miraculously provides for her day after day after day for her and her son. And now this woman who was on the very brink of loss and collapse now is revived, and she's filled with hope, and her faith that was gone revives. And she trusted God, and she took a risk, and she was vulnerable, and, and, and she did what she thought she was supposed to do. And yet, even after all of that, now this. And I wonder if you've ever been there. You know, I wonder if some of you are there right now. You know, you took a risk, and you trusted, and maybe you took a step of faith, and then it seemed like after all of that, it seemed like, you know, hope was revived, and now this, and now this, and it just feels so wrong, and it just feels like it's just not fair. And this is where this woman is at in this place. And I just want to share with you what she does in this moment. And I want to invite you, maybe if you've been there, maybe if you're there right now, to do what the woman does. Notice what she does. She, she takes this deep pain she's feeling inside, and she brings it out, and she voices it to the prophet. And look at what it says. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, O man of God? 
Did you come to remind me of my sin and to kill my son? And you can tell something has been boiling up inside of her for quite some time. She's upset. She's angry. And, and, and you know, she's unfair in this moment. You know, sometimes when you're dealing with trauma and you're upset, you're just looking for someone to blame. And, and you're looking for someone to vomit your anger out on, and you don't even know exactly what you're feeling inside. But she unleashes it, and the object of her anger becomes Elijah. And Elijah surely is thinking like, what, have, what did I do? I've just been here feeding you. I didn't come here to kill you. You know, like, what did, what did I do? And, and it's not fair, but give her this. She voices her pain. She brings to speech what's there. She doesn't pretend in front of the religious guy. She doesn't try to have a different kind of front before the prophet of God. And listen, this is almost always where your healing will begin. This is almost always where your journey from that dark night of the soul into the light begins. It begins when you find a place where you can honestly tell your story of pain. You can voice what's going on inside. And you, maybe it's to a prophet or to a priest or to a pastor or to a therapist or to a trusted friend or maybe to a parent, but you find somewhere where may, you don't have the story right. Maybe it is out of whack in your own imagination and in your head, but you can't keep it down and so you voice it and you bring that pain to speech. This is what this woman does. She brings it to speech in the face of Elijah, and she hurls at him, you know, this deep pain, this deep trauma, you know, you've killed my son. This is your fault, Elijah. Now, I want you to notice Elijah's response. And this is instructive because, you know, some of us, we've been in that place where it is, where we, we've been, you know, disoriented, and we're out of whack, and we're saying whatever's coming out of our, we don't even know what's coming out of our mouth, but it's being hurled at someone because you've got to speak what's going on inside, and it's coming out, and, and you, you're, you're like, and, and, and then sometimes you're that person who's speaking the truth, but have you ever been on the receiving end of somebody's misdirected anger? Have you ever thought, that's unfair what you're saying? I don't deserve that. You're, you're vomiting all of this anger and all this abuse on me, and I didn't do anything. And this is the place Elijah's at. And I want you to note well Elijah's response. Some of you may need to write this down because maybe you have been in that place. Maybe you're there right now. And what Elijah does, it, he takes us to school on how to respond when we are the recipient of somebody's misdirected anger that maybe is arising out of their trauma. And listen, maybe you've got kids in their 20s and they started seeing a therapist and in therapy they realized that you're the problem, parents. And, you know, quite frankly, you probably haven't been like Elijah. Maybe you actually haven't been blameless. Maybe you have contributed to the trauma your kids have experienced, you know, and um, maybe you've got to receive something. And, and Elijah is telling us how to respond in this moment. He gives us a lesson on how to respond. And I want you to note first what Elijah doesn't do. You know, my response would be something like this. I love this image of Elijah. I'd be kind of like, what? <laughs> what? What did I do? How dare you? What's going on? Like, what's wrong with you? You know, I've just been feeding you. What? You know, 
But I want you to note what Elijah doesn't do in this moment. Number one, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't, he, he doesn't try to say, look, you know, I've just been feeding you this whole time. This isn't my fault. Whatever you, I didn't kill your son. This isn't my fault. He doesn't defend himself. And he also doesn't minimize her pain. He doesn't say, oh, you know, sorry, you know, but, but, you know, it's really not so bad. It could be a lot worse. You know, Nicholas Wolterstorff in that same book, Lament for His Son, said this. He said, don't say to me it's really not so bad, because it is. Death is awful, demonic. If you think your task as a comforter is to tell me that really, all things considered, it's not so bad, you do not sit with me in my grief, but place yourself off in a distance away from me. And over there, you are no help to me. He doesn't minimize her grief. He doesn't try to explain it away. And he doesn't mansplain. He, he doesn't go into explanations. He doesn't start correcting her theology. You know, she's got some bad theology. She's like, you know, what have, what have I, you know, you've, 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 you know, God wasn't paying attention to me and then you showed up prophet and then you somehow directed God's attention to me and it exposed my sin and now God brought this bad stuff on me. And it's all tweaked. It's a warped narrative. But he doesn't correct her narrative. He doesn't minimize her pain and he doesn't defend himself. Notice what he does. Look at the text. He said to her, give to me your son. He essentially says, let me share your burden. Let me help you carry your pain. He says, give me your son, and he took him from her into his arms. Do you see the tenderness there, the care? And he carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged, and he laid him on his own bed. He welcomes her burden into his arms. He takes the now lifeless boy, and he carries in that lifeless boy all of her crushed hopes, all of her disappointment in God and in herself and in her life, and he bears it in himself, and he carries it up, and he lays it on his own bed. And here, Elijah is for us, the very embodiment of the command, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so he welcomes her burden into his own arms, and then he becomes vulnerable with both the woman and with God. Because notice what he does next. He lays the child on the bed, and then look, Elijah in some sense takes the woman's accusation and, and everything she's hurled at him and the question behind it, is this your fault? Is this God's fault? Is it my fault? Somebody's gotta be to blame. And she's got her questions hurling it at him, and notice what he does. He cried out to the Lord. He said, oh, Lord, my God, have you brought this calamity upon even this widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? You know, it's interesting in this moment, Elijah, who is the prophet of God, you know, among the Old Testament prophets, Elijah is among the greatest. Right up there with Moses, you know, it's Elijah, and Elijah is in tight with God. He knows the voice of God. He speaks 
the word of God. He carries the authority of God. He, he, he is an, an, an agent and a conduit of the power of God. And yet Elijah doesn't know the answer to her question. He doesn't know why she's suffering this way. He doesn't know why her child has died. The reason why he hurls this question at God is because the prophet of God doesn't know. And you know, it is an act of vulnerability when you are supposed to be the person in authority, whether you're the parents or the pastor or the elder or the Sunday school teacher or the boss, and somebody is hurling questions at you that you just don't know the answer. You don't got a Bible verse on it, and you just, and, and to just say, I don't know, and I've got my own questions. God, is, is this you? I don't know. And, and I, I, don't, I don't know, but maybe when this woman overheard this jarring prayer, maybe in this moment it occurred to her that this is not just the man of God or the prophet of God. This is a fellow, fellow creature of dust who is finite, who finite though he is, he cannot exploit and he cannot explore and he cannot fully explain and plumb the depths of the mystery of the infinite and eternal God from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. And so in this moment, he confesses some ignorance and I think in that confession, he might connect with her in this moment of vulnerability. You know, I was, I was talking with a therapist last month, and one of the things that he said to me was he said, Josh, I, I think one of the things you need to work on is to connect before you correct. You know, you, you think, you know, somebody comes to me, I'm, I, you know, I'm a boss, I give oversight to, to people, I'm a, I'm a dad, you know, I'm a husband, I, you know, and, and sometimes uh, things are said that maybe I don't agree with or I don't like, or maybe they're hurtful, maybe they're right, but still I feel defensive. And so I want to correct and I want to defend. And he said, that's never going to get you where you need to go. If you really want to see people who are in spaces of death and pain and darkness experience something of life and for you to be something of the agent that maybe speaks that truth of God that brings life into their life, the first thing you need to do is connect. It's just to move toward them in vulnerability. Don't, you know, your, your son or daughter, let's say, comes to you and they start saying, look, the way you raised me messed me up. And maybe instead of defending yourself, you say, tell me more. I'm curious to know about that. Help me understand. That must have really been hard for you when I said that or when I did that. And you know, the problem sometimes with church people is we haven't learned the humility of Elijah. We think we have all of the answers and that we have to have certitude on everything there is. But sometimes we just don't. And we have feet of clay and we are creatures of dust and we are finite and we screw up. And sometimes you just got to enter into that space with somebody in vulnerability and meet with them there. And sometimes that is where the healing can continue to go because somebody met you in vulnerability. And so, you know, the story unfolds. The woman is suffering. She vomits her accusations and all of her attack on Elijah. He responds not with 
explanations and not with correction and not with, not with defense. Instead, he, he, he bears her burden and he moves into a space of vulnerability. But, you know, of course, this woman needs more than a vulnerable prophet, doesn't she? She needs more than somebody who's going to connect with her. She needs a miracle that the prophet of his own accord cannot give her. She needs a power outside of, this, outside of this prophet. She needs something more than simply a sympathetic person who's going to sit with her. She needs, she needs God. And so Elijah turns now to the only one who can bring life in the midst of the death. And look at what it says. Then he stretched himself out upon the child three times, and he cried to the Lord, and he said, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber and into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. So Elijah takes the now lifeless boy and he presents it to God, the only one who can bring life in the face of death. And he surrenders and he submits all of this, this death, all of this, all of this pain and all of this sorrow into the hands of God and he surrenders it there. And he calls out to God and he asks for God to work and to move. But he doesn't just do that. He does something curious in this text, doesn't he? Did you see it? The text says that before he prayed, he stretched out his body on this lifeless boy, not once, not twice, but three times. And we modern readers are asking the question, what on earth is going on here? Like, what, why is he, like, what's, what's up with that, you know? He, he's calling out to God, you know, in prayer. Why does he need to stretch out his body on this child? And, you know, what most scholars believe is that in the ancient world, there was a belief that, you know, a holy person, somebody who was connected with God, could, 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 could perhaps through this kind of ritual of coming face to face with a child communicates something of the life of the prophet to the lifeless boy and could bear some of that illness and death into his own life and so through that communication end up helping bring restoration to this child's life. Now we wonder, well, I mean, surely, you know, nowhere in the Bible is anybody commanded to do that and why is he doing that? And let's just note this. Yes, it is God who ultimately brings life to this lifeless boy. It is the power of God and only God that can bring life to the dead, but God is not displeased to use human means. He uses the prophet, even as he used the ravens to bring the bread and the meat, and he used the widow, poor though she was, to provide flour and oil to, to, to do his miraculous So now he uses this human prophet who gets his body close to the lifeless dead body. And the boy comes back to life. And listen how the story ends. The woman says to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. Do you see there's been a journey on this, in this woman's life. 
She went from a place of cynical faith. Oh, man of God, did you come here to kill my son? To now a place of renewed and living faith. Now I know. She's come alive. Her her faith was dead and now her faith has come alive even as this child who was dead has now come alive. And and, and I just want to stand back as we close out this story and make this observation. Actually, just raise this question. Are there places in your life that have gone dormant and maybe dead that need to come back to life? Maybe it's your faith. Maybe it's your joy. Maybe maybe it's hope or purpose. And through a set of circumstances in your life, through, through difficult circumstance after difficult, painful problem and heartache, you just are starting to give up and you think, I just need, I, I just, I just grown cold and I've grown dead. And I want us to observe this in this text. Is that we are not alone in our places of death. You know, it would have been easy, I think, you know, you think about this drama happening underneath the roof of this small shack of the widow. And underneath the roof, you know, enclosed in this little home, there's accusations and there's defense, or there's, there's um, you know, she, she's hurling all this stuff and anger and unbelief, and then Elijah is trying to respond to it and, and, and grapple with it, and then there's the lifeless boy that's, that's there and all of this pain and tragedy, and then there's, there's Elijah's prayer of lament and then his prayer of petition, and, and for all he knows, the prayers are going up and hitting the ceiling and coming back down because sometimes it just feels like we live in a closed universe, like our life, our, heart, our homes have been closed off to God and we're just stuck with what we see. But this text comes to us to proclaim to us this truth that your home and your heart and your life and this universe is not closed. It is open to the power and to the love of God. And it is so open to the love and the power of God that God's life, his resurrection life and power entered into humanity and became flesh and blood. And there Christ became the true and better Elijah who didn't just bring his body close to dead humanity and and, 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 in an an act of ritual, maybe, you know, have this weird communication between, you know, the wellness of the prophet and the sickness of the boy. Christ, the Bible says, bore in his own body our sins and our shame and our death. And he buried it all in the tomb. And then three days later, he burst forth from the grave because death cannot hold us and death could not hold him. And he was raised from the dead so that God's life might burst forth in this old world so that we might know that the universe is not close to the power and the resurrection life of God. And listen, that power that walked out of the tomb, the life of Jesus that walked out in the tomb has been unleashed in this world and it is available. You know, do you ever feel sometimes like things could never change? 
Like, my pain will never go away. Hope can never be revived. You know, like, like I'm just stuck in this dysfunctional family pattern, and I am, I, I'm destined to just relive my own family story, or I'm stuck in this dysfunctional relationship after dysfunctional relationship, and I break up with one person, and it seems like I get back into the same pattern again and again, and I just keep falling, and I can't escape the addictive patterns and the, and, and the, and the, and the pain, and and. Early on Sunday morning on Easter, uh, the life of Jesus walked out of the tomb and that life has been unleashed in this world so that when we come to God and we surrender our life to God and we submit ourselves to God, we can have faith and confidence and trust that God is not deaf and he's not blind. God hears and God sees, and this is the God who acts even in spaces of death to revive hope and faith and love. And one more thing. In the same way in our text, how God used human agents, you know, he uses the raven, I guess the raven's not a human agent, You know, he used the thug raven to bring the bread and the meat, and he used the poor widow to provide the flour and the oil, and he provides this, or he uses the weird ritual of Elijah to come close to this child and the arms of Elijah to bear the child. God has brought people in our own life who can be instruments of his life to us, of his grace to us. God chooses to use human means God continues to use a loving friend, a well-trained therapist, a pastor, maybe a a spiritual practice, something. God, God uses all kinds of means in order to bring sometimes life back into us. And so open up your eyes and look around and see what does God might wanna use in your life to revive hope. Maybe he wants to use a celebrate recovery group at Christ Church. And maybe he wants to use a community group. And um, maybe he wants to use Alpha. You've, you've lost faith or you're asking questions. You go there. May, maybe, again, he wants you to go see a therapist. I mean, there's all sorts of means God can use. But avail yourself to means while you submit and surrender yourself to God and don't give up faith. Don't give up trust. This is the God who raises the dead. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and Father, we confess that we live in the midst of the deep tension between the life that broke into the world in Jesus and that final day when you will remove all tears and pain and sorrow. We thank you, God, that even in the time of this tension where suffering and pain is real and it remains, we thank you, God, that in your garden you are still pleased to bring fruit from broken branches. And God, we pray that you would look upon those spaces of brokenness in our hearts, in our lives, in our homes, in marriages. God, would you look upon us And would you, oh God, bring new life? Would you surprise us, God, that our lives are open to you 
And would you bring people around us who can be instruments and agents of hope and healing and life and reconciliation. And God, would you ignite hope and trust that is needed to walk that long journey to experience healing. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, in whom, God, you have defeated all darkness and pain and death. Amen.